0: What is the spiritual DNA of someone who would be used by the Lord to build his church and and shepherd his sheep? Is is effective spiritual leadership a a matter of giftedness? Is it a mere matter of training or of a skill set? What actually sits highest on the Lord's agenda for those who, who lead his people? Does God indeed himself care about the character and the conduct of leaders? What if those leaders are being effective in the worldly sense? What if they're accomplishing good things to the human eye? What if they're filling up church services and church buildings and meeting church budgets? What is the biblical prescription for an effective spiritual leader? That's the question before us in Malachi 2 this morning. It's the issue of this text because Israel herself found themselves in a time where it was overrun by poor spiritual leadership. In fact, it was so bad that the Lord sent his prophets to confront his priests with how poorly they were leading his people. I've been in ministry long enough to be with churches picking up the pieces of the carnage of poor spiritual leadership. And it is a terrible reality. That's much like what Israel faces in Malachi's day. This is what was begun back in chapter 1. We saw that last week as the priests were called on the carpet for their worthless and wearisome worship before the Lord. And now in chapter two, that scathing rebuke continues and the Lord calls them out for their dishonor and their disobedience to him. He says it this way in Malachi 2, the word of the Lord to these priests. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessing. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Sometimes the best context for defining what is good and right is when things are bad and wrong. You see this in an athletic competition when a coach goes in at halftime down by 20 points in a basketball game and and chides his team, and makes corrections. He saw by how badly they were playing what needed to be fixed. They come out in the second half, and they torch the other team, come back, have an epic comeback, and win the game. Where you see this in a music practice. When your teacher stops you after playing a line and, and says, this is what you did wrong. If you want to do good, you must change this. And as it relates to leadership, sometimes it's it's hard when things are seemingly going well to define good leaders but when things are bad, it becomes quite obvious what needs to change. You can quickly put your finger on the pulse of that is wrong and bad. That's the context of Malachi 2. Things are really bad, and God's prophet comes with a message saying this is what needs to change. These priests are roundly indicted by the Lord for their failures, and their failures have had effect on the people of God, and that's that's why they're chided, because as the leaders go, so go the people. What's fascinating to me about the text is that in, in the middle of this indictment and this scathing rebuke of these disobedient, dishonorable priests is this clear description of what's good, of how it should be, of, of a job description of a faithful priest, a faithful servant of the Lord. So there's quite a contrast in our text between bad spiritual leadership and, and good spiritual leadership. In many ways, if you move the scope of your sight in the church outside to broader evangelicalism, you could say that the last 30 years has really become what we see in Malachi. That we're filled with men leading the church poorly. Men have been elevated to positions based upon gifting and skill. If they can, if they can keep and draw a crowd, if they can put seats in the seat and bucks in the plate, then they will be elevated to leadership positions. Churches have given themselves over to pragmatism to to chase numbers of people and numbers of dollars, and success in ministry has become defined by external factors and worldly metrics. Things like more people and, and bigger ministry efforts and bigger and nicer building. And postmodern thought has infiltrated the church and tempted her to think that the objective statements of truth are too harsh. They're, They're too rigid for today's soft world. And so the move in church leadership broadly has been to round out the edges of blunt truth by contextualizing the Bible to our current culture. To make some of the hard things in the New Testament be cultural things in the New Testament that can be changed and morphed to be less problematic in our cultural moment. Entertainment has gripped the soul of the church and lured her into thinking that a good show on Sunday morning which moves one's emotions is fit to be called worship. And frankly, because all these things seem to be working, spiritual leaders continue to do that. But I think if you look hard enough and with enough discernment, you can see the carnage of this type of spiritual leadership over 30 plus years in the broader evangelical church. The gospel has been muddled and the lives of the lost are now being affirmed in their sin rather than transformed by the grace of God. The church has lost its power in many cases. Its message looks different than Uh, than what it does in the New Testament and little different than the social movements of our culture. What a context into which the Lord now speaks His mind on the matter. In a context where bad spiritual leadership can be found almost on every corner of church life, God through His prophets speaks this word to us this morning and says here is good spiritual leadership. Here's what it should look like and you ought not put up with anything less than this, God says. So what is it that's wrong with bad spiritual leadership for the Lord in any day? And what is it that defines good spiritual leadership among God's people in any day? This, as you now know by my introduction, is not a matter of preference or personality likes or of interest, that you're drawn to one leader over another because of how they interact with you or because of how they lead from up front. That's not what is at issue in the church and in the people of God. The health and usefulness of Christ's church hangs in the balance of this matter. Shepherds direct and sheep follow. So we as the church must discern bad leadership, and we must develop good leadership. And this text is so helpful in that endeavor. We, I could lay before you 30 books on this issue that are helpful. And we could spend much time here, but let's confine ourselves to the truths of this text. How does this text help us discern bad leadership and develop good leadership? And how does that instruct us going forward in the church? Well, let's look first at that bad leadership. What is it about these priests that provokes this rebuke from the Lord of hosts? Is it a lack of of competency in their offering of the sacrifices? Maybe they didn't slice the animal just right? Or they didn't light the the fire on the altar just right. Maybe it's a lack of social skills that has so upset the Lord. Maybe, maybe they just talked a little gruffly to the worshiper who came to bring the offering. Maybe, maybe these men just need a class on communication and interpersonal leadership. Maybe they need we need to transport a 21st century book on leadership back to them, and, and they'll figure it out, and then God will be happy. Well, you know from the reading, it goes much deeper than that, right? That God has a, a legit... Heart beef with these men. A spiritual leader's influence is not merely a matter of of gifting or skills or communication, but their view and relationship to God. That's the heart of what he addresses in chapter in verse 2 of chapter 2. When he says that they will not take it to heart to give honor to God's name. This has been their pattern. In other words, they, they dishonor the Lord because they will not take what God has said to heart. He is, through Malachi the prophet, giving them another opportunity to hear and to heed, to to listen and to change. But as for now, these are men who have been fairly set in their ways, and they are dishonoring the name of God. And remember, as we talked last week, they're men who are serving the Lord of hosts, a name meant to communicate the supreme authority of God over all things. One who has ability and power to conquer all things and have rule over all things. He's not a tribal God of a local religion. He's not simply risen to conquest a certain people or a certain area or even the whole world. He's the Lord of the hosts of heaven and earth. He he owns it all and controls it all and it all bows at his command. And it's this God that these priests are here among his people to Represent. They serve in a divinely appointed office by which they are rightly representing the one who appointed them. And yet here they are, unconvinced of the love of God, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, and unconcerned about how they offer the specific offerings brought to worship, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. And now, dishonoring his name, unwilling to take it to heart, you might say they they hear it with their ears, but they are unwilling to apply it to their lives. They, they know what God commands, but they don't want to do what God commands. Their hearts are far from what God wants them to do. Bad leaders of God's people operate this way. It becomes. Ministry according to them instead of according to God. And in so doing, they dishonor God's name. Not only that, but they don't listen. That's in verse 2 as well. They've been told by God himself. They have all that they need for life and godliness and for their ministry in the written word of God. That's what's what's so shocking to me about the the uh, declension of spiritual leadership in the church. This is not rocket science. God has given us everything we need to know to lead his people well and to be faithful to him. And we make it so complicated. And we come up with all kinds of human reasoning to guide us in our leadership in the church. The issue is not that we don't know and have to figure it out. The issue is we often don't want to listen. We don't want to know what God has said. This is what was happening with these priests. They have the truth. They know what they're supposed to do. They have Scripture written where it has faithful examples of past priests who have been faithful to their task, and yet they shut their ears and close their eyes. They don't want to be bothered with the truth. Don't weigh me down with the facts. Let me do what I want to do. Their unbelief coupled with their rebellious ways have formed a hardened clay over their spiritual ears and eyes. And they simply no longer hear what God has to say. Not only that, but they don't fear God in verse 5. This is taken from the the positive description in verse 5. Contrasted to what it should be, these men who are poor priests who corrupt the covenant of Levi obviously have a low estimation of God. How do we know that? Well, they're unwilling to listen to God. And they're unwilling to obey God. They won't take his words and apply it to their own hearts. They simply don't stand in awe of the Lord they say they represent. They don't fear God. Fearing God is simply understanding God to be who he is and understanding yourself in light of that reality. That's a a basic description of the fear of God. And anytime you grasp the reality of who God is and who you are in relationship to the greatness of God, you can't help but be humbled. You can't help but like Isaiah, fall flat on your face and cry out and say woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The fear of God is driven by a high and holy and right view of the God of heaven and a right understanding of the sinfulness of my own heart. This is so lacking in the broader church, to be honest. There's fear of personality and fear of gimmicks and esteem of ideas and and human machinery within the realms of the halls of God's people. There's estimation of, of one author over another that if we follow that, we'll do well and all of this is done in in the name of the Lord and supposedly for the glory of the Lord but in reality that's just lipstick that we put on the pig of our own self glory in ministry we we say we fear the Lord but it's just the platform upon which we build ourselves up to gain influence and power and fame among God's people i would think one of the most detestable realities in the church to Our Lord's eyes and ears, I am not him, so I do not know, but I'm just guessing, is these pastor influencers who build themselves social platforms by which they become names that everyone knows. And that tells you almost everything you need to know. And I don't know their motives. I'm just saying the the fruit of those kinds of ministries is often that people know more about that person than they ever do about God. And God becomes the platform upon which this person gains popularity and money and fame in the broader church. You see, bad spiritual leaders have little to no fear of God. They also don't keep God's ways. That's in verse 8. That's the indictment given there by our Lord. They've turned aside from the way of God. So they've shut their ears. They've they stopped applying it to their heart. They no longer listen to his instructions or his rebukes, and therefore they've determined to to go their own way and do their own thing. And that's, that's exactly the opposite of what they've been called to do, right? They are on planet Earth for the very purpose of being God's men in God's place to do God's thing. And here they are in God's place saying, yeah, no thanks. Thanks for that suggestion, Lord. I think we'll do it this way. Oh, you want a pure offering? A land without blemish. Well, this one almost has no blemishes. That's okay, right? You'll be all right with that. These men did not keep God's ways. And connected to that, then they derailed others in the second part of verse 8. They went astray themselves, and because they did, they, they led others to do the same. That's what leaders do. Leadership is influence. When you have influence over someone else and you go the wrong way, you lead someone else to follow you to do the same thing. And this is like the epitome of bad leadership, right? When they're supposed to be taking you somewhere and you end up in the wrong place, like, you know, your Google Maps and you say, take me to my friend's house out in the country. And, and as they take you along the way, they take you down some sand, dirt country road that all of a sudden dead ends and there's no way to turn around. That's bad leadership, Right? Google Maps failed you at that moment. They did not take you the right way. That may or may not have ever happened to me. (laughs) That's what these men wrongly do. They lead poorly by leading others the same way they themselves are going. This is by bad teaching and bad example. They cause many to stumble. They then also despise their calling. That's at the end of verse 8. They've corrupted the covenant of Levi, which I'm going to explain in a minute in the positive description. It was a post for which they were chosen for by the Lord of hosts. They had been called into this by their forefathers, by God's covenant with them. They didn't have a choice here. He had appointed them to this task, and they had disregarded this calling. They had said, essentially, I don't want this. I don't want to do what you've called me to do. It's too hard. It's too involved. It's too difficult. It's too many problem people. I, I don't want to do it your way. And they went their own way, and they despised their calling given to them by God. And this is so often what bad spiritual leaders do. They they forget whose role this is and who it's been given to them by. And they go about their, their task their own way because they despise the calling given them by the God of heaven. They also distort the truth. That's in verse 9. They've shown partiality in their instruction. In other words, they haven't laid the the word of God straight. They haven't cut it straight and laid it open for God's people to see, to heed, and to be shaped by. Rather, the starting point for their instruction has been the people they're speaking to rather than the text they're speaking from. And they shape their message based on who's going to be in the audience listening to them. Or who it is that's come and asked them for counsel about some difficult knot in their life of faith. And so they've shaped their counsel based on the person to whom they are giving instruction. It's entirely backwards. The the truth is never to be bound by or shaped to the person receiving the truth. It's always the opposite. Truth always comes upon the one hearing it and is to shape the listener. After an interaction between mankind and the inerrant, eternal word of God, the only thing changed after that interaction should be mankind, not the word of God. These men were playing with God's truth like Plato to win and appease their listeners so as to keep their jobs. They've given themselves up to their own ways, and now they lead others to do the same through their teaching. I wonder, you've heard me read the text. How do you think God thinks about all this? Because really, that's the only thing that matters here, right? It doesn't matter what what Matt says about the leaders of the evangelical church broadly. If, If these things are true of the church leaders in America, what does God think about it? Well, what did he think about it in Malachi's day? Well, you're in verse 9, so look what he says there, and then we'll just kind of work our way backwards. He tells them in verse 9 that because of all of this, God has made them despised and abased before all the people. In other words, they were dishonoring God, and so God says, I'm dishonoring you. I'm going to humble you before you. I'm not going to honor and elevate men who are dishonoring me. So The epitome of your job is to honor me, and you're not doing that, therefore I dishonor you. And then it's worse as you go back, back at verses 2 and 3. He tells them there that because of this seven-pronged indictment against them and their leadership, he's going to bring a curse against them. And he's speaking, I believe, of the curses associated with the law of Moses pronounced in Deuteronomy 28. Specifically, God says that he will curse their blessings. And more than that, he says, I've already done that. And you just think of, well, what are the blessings for the, the sons of Aaron, the priests? And the Levites. What are the blessings? Well, you know enough of the sacrificial system to know that that their livelihood was dependent upon the offerings of God's people who brought their offerings to the tabernacle or to the temple. For several of the offerings, the priests and their families got to take and keep part or most of an offering. And so, if God is unhappy with them and the children of Israel, and brings the curse upon them, what's going to happen? Well, he's told us in Deuteronomy, he'll not send rain and he'll send plague on their crops. What's that going to do to the offerings? Decrease them significantly, right? And so the Levitical families, the sons of Aaron, are going to have less blessing because the people of God are not honoring God with their lives. Therefore, they are being affected in how their crops and animals are doing. And so their blessings are cursed because of their poor spiritual leadership. But it's worse than that. Verse 3, God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to spread the dung of your sacrifices on your faces. If you have read Leviticus lately, which you all should have been in Nick's Sunday school class in Leviticus, it's been fantastic. But if you haven't read it, And in the book of Leviticus, the priests were prescribed how to deal with the entrails of the offerings, right? They were to take the carcasses, including the dung and the entrails, and take it outside the camp and burn it. Because it has no place in the public worship of God. It is despised and unusable and is only good for burning. Get the picture? God says that's what... You are, O priests, in my sight. You are like that dung. You you ought to be taken outside of the camp and left there, discarded from the presence of the Lord. And and what an indictment. In the economy of Old Testament worship, these were the men who were the only ones allowed to be in the visible presence of God. And God says, because of how you're treating me, you're unfit for that. You're not able to be in my presence. I'm going to send you out with the dung. In other words, beloved, this is a big deal to God. He cares deeply about his leadership of his people. We see this in the New Testament too, don't we? Remember the words of Jesus as he interacted with the scribes and the Pharisees who you could argue were self-appointed leaders of God's people, experts in the law, used their knowledge of the law to leverage themselves as authority figures over the people of God. Remember in in Matthew 23, there's a a seven-pronged indictment, ironically. Seven woes pronounced upon the scribes and Pharisees, much like what we see in Malachi 2. In one of those, verse 15, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The heart of their leadership is bad leadership because it leads people to the wrong thing. It makes them just like they are. And and that's what all leaders do. Even if they play a game with their upfront presence, in reality, they're shaping their people to be exactly who they are. Which is why Jesus blisters them with this indictment and this woe in Matthew 23. Later in verse 33, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, I remind you that the scribes and the Pharisees were the the most respected men in Jewish society. Little Jewish boys grew up saying, I want to be a Pharisee. They did not grow up saying, I want to be a Sadducee. None of them wanted to be like the Sadducees, but they all wanted to be like the Pharisees. They held the respect of the people because they were experts in the law. They were supposedly holy in their lives. They had the external trappings of religious zeal. They looked like they were godly. Jesus says, you are as far from godly as possible. You are children of hell. Early in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 18, Jesus speaks of how careful leaders should be when they deal with children. And I think he's not just speaking of children of age, but also children of faith, young people in their faith. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. God care about bad spiritual leadership. Yes, He does. This is why the half brother of Jesus, when he wrote his letter, chapter three, verse one, James says, "Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is coming a day in which all spiritual leaders will stand." and give account for their leadership of the people of God. So we must discern bad spiritual leadership. We also must then develop good leadership. This is the, the black backdrop of the corrupt priests upon which we now lay the shining diamond of, of a true description of good spiritual leadership in verses 4 through 7. He points them back to his covenant with Levi, to the example of the former sons of Levi who have served so faithfully, and he gives us in that description a, a clear statement of excellent spiritual leadership for God's people. Where these are positive and where they show themselves to be true in the leadership of God's people, then God's church thrives. God's people abound in grace and truth and peace and hope and love the fruits of the Spirit, they rejoice together and give glory to God. When they're in positions like this, they are to be filled with this type of character and these types of behaviors. And if not, they're to be removed from those positions of leadership on the basis of two or three witnesses, as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. So we're to discern the bad and deal with them. If men proved to be more like the first set than the second set, and they're already in positions of leadership, then we as the church have the responsibility to deal with that. And other leaders in the church have the responsibility given by the Lord of the church to deal with that in grace, in love, in truth, but in firmness of judgment. But we're also to develop good spiritual leadership. And that's what he does. He he lays out the pattern and the, the lifestyle and the emphases of what good spiritual leaders are made of. You might be thinking, I'm I'm not a spiritual leader. I'm not planning to be one anytime soon. I, I, I don't even have aspirations to this. But in reality, what is described here is essential Christianity. There's nothing here that in itself sets someone ahead and above others in what God expects of normal Christians. And that's exactly what you see when you turn to the pastoral epistles, to 1 Timothy 3, particularly, and to Titus 1. The descriptions given, the the requirements for what you have to look like to be an elder in the church of Christ is, as D.A. Carson says, remarkably unremarkable. They're just pretty normal stuff. The only one you could argue is a little different is being apt to teach, kind of more skill-based and gifting-based. The rest of it are character issues that every Christian, male and female, young and old, are to pursue and grow into. And these leaders are the ideal examples of those things. So, what is true of these good spiritual leaders? Well, they know their calling, they fear God, they guard the truth, and they walk uprightly. First, they know their calling in verses 4 and 5. The basis for all spiritual leaders operating in God-honoring ways is that they they know their calling. For priests, it was the covenant of God that he had made with Levi. It was a a conditional covenant. There's not much made of it in the Old Testament text, by the way. You might not know that it wasn't actually a a covenant until you get to later texts like Malachi 2. You're like, oh, that was a covenant. You go back and read it, and it's like, oh, it was indeed. We see it first in Numbers 3 when... They're coming out of, the promise, or out of Egypt into the promised land. And God has demanded the firstborn to be offered of, of the flock and of every family. And he has substituted the firstborn of every family with the tribe of Levi. And he has said to Moses, set aside the tribe of Levi, and they will be the offering, the redemption price for the firstborn of all the families of the children of Israel. And they will be inscripted into my service. This was the terms of the agreement between God and his people, and namely the sons of Levi. We see it again in Exodus 32, 27 to 29. That's actually before the Numbers 3 text. But in that text, you remember they they stood with Moses in that situation with the golden calf. When Moses said, after he came down and, and saw the immorality and the godlessness in the camp and the worship of a false god and as he began to deal with it, he said, who is on the Lord's side? Remember what the text says? The sons of Levi went and stood with Moses. And after they dealt with all the wicked men in the camp and 3,000 or more died that day, Moses said to them, you will now serve the Lord. It's reiterated in Deuteronomy 21, verse 5, Deuteronomy 33, 8 through 11, where we're, we're told the description of these Levites is that they are to serve God and they are to teach God's people. In other words, they're intermediaries between God and his people, set apart to lead and to serve. And the best of them were mindful of their calling. They refused to get caught up in the ambition of their own person and their own interests, their own skills, and their own giftings. Rather, they were aware that the only reason they were here, the only reason they were doing this work in the tabernacle or in the temple was because God had told them to. God had appointed them for this task, for this hour. In other words, they were mere servants of the Lord of hosts. And that kept them humble and faithful. This is, by the way, an essential posture for the leaders in Christ's church. The men who are convinced that Christ will build his church, that he will supply his church with leaders who move the church forward in faithful zeal for him. They're men who fear the Lord. Derek Prime said it this way, that a man should be full of the Holy Spirit is the major requirement for Christian leadership and an essential difference from all other kinds of leadership. Christian leaders, he says, are essentially Christ-made. While they possess natural abilities, it is the Holy Spirit who enables them to use them to the benefit of the church. He is Christ's gift to them. Christ makes and provides leaders for his church. Leaders in other spheres may sometimes describe themselves as self-made or duly qualified because of examinations passed, but not so Christian leaders. Now, he does not mean that we ought not have processes to vet the qualifications of men for the position of shepherd or deacon in the church. We ought to. And we do. But what he means is that that is not, if you pass an ordination council, that is not what makes you qualified to shepherd God's people. What makes you qualified and able to fulfill that task is the ministry of the Holy Spirit within each man, equipping him and empowering him to the work that stands before him. that creates then, or should create, a humble submission in godly men. This, by the way, is no different for you who are husbands and fathers. It's a role appointed for you by the God of heaven, one in which you are inadequate for. You you do not have enough skill and gifting and knowledge and time to do well. And if you're going to be successful in any way, faithful in any way in that role as a leader in your home, it will be God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, who uses you to accomplish His work in your family, just as He does in His church. A. W. Tozer says, "The true leader will have no desire to lord it over God's heritage, but will be humble, gentle, self-sacrifice, and an altogether as ready to follow as to lead." See, the faithful shepherd has a strong and persistent sense of God's calling to God's work. They also fear God. That's the second part of verse five. The second mark of these men, they fear God. It's the basis of the relationship between God and the sons of Levi. He made a covenant of fear with them and they did indeed fear the Lord and they stood in awe of him at times. Now, not always. In Malachi's day, they certainly didn't. In the days of the kings, they certainly didn't. They allowed for immoral ungodly idolatry. There are key moments in which the sons of Levi stood with God amidst amidst great opposition. You remember that, right? I referenced the golden calf already. You remember what, what was it that compelled the sons of Levi to go stand with Moses? They feared God more than they feared all of their other people around them. More than that, you remember also Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10. Aaron and his sons had been appointed and consecrated and ready to serve in the temple. And this was their first day serving. And Nadab and Abihu got a little excited and offered something they shouldn't offer at a time they shouldn't offer it. And God dealt with them severely to make a point. We're going to do this the way I prescribed, or you're not going to do it at all. And Aaron is there serving as his sons lay dead and being pulled out of the tabernacle scene. And he has to maintain his composure. And and that's exactly what the text says. It says he kept his peace. And then Moses says to Aaron, do not publicly mourn for them. Why? Because God doesn't care about his grief? No. Because there's a greater issue going on here than these dead sons. It's the majesty and the glory of the worship of God. And so... Aaron had to hold his peace until later in the day. The next day, I don't know, where he could grieve openly. But for the moment, he had to fear God. The key element of those who would seek to lead God's people, they must have a a constant and ever-developing sense of the greatness and goodness of God. Pastors who lose their edge, elders, shepherds in the church who lose their edge, who lose the ability to be as effective as God would want them to be, are men who've lost sight of God. They must stand in awe of Him, not just preach it, but tremble and rejoice before their Lord. Their lives must be marked by this high view of God. They they must not just think of it in their heads, they must have it fleshed out in their livelihood. Where it's obvious that God matters most to that man, more than any other. There's a constant temptation within the people of God to elevate men above other men, right? We have this comparison thing as humanity where we, we want to estimate people. and We do that related to ourselves all the time. We, we walk into a room and we kind of figure out where we stand in the pecking order of whoever is in there. It's really godless to do that, but we, we do it. It's part of our sinfulness. And we do this in the church, too. We, we elevate others above others because of their effectiveness or because of, our, of, of their likeliness to us, so that we like them more than others. I think that's obvious, more obvious on the bigger scale of, of church life. We, we seem essentially to say, I am, I am of MacArthur, or I am of Piper, or I am of Spurgeon, or I am of Walbert, or I am of Jeremiah, or I am of Ryrie, or I am of Fruchtenbaum or I am of Sproul, or whoever you want to put in there. It's easy for us to, to latch ourselves onto the guy we like the most in the economy of the life of the church. This can happen on the local church level too, as a man is more and more effective and people make statements comparing one to another and that only adds to that man's pride. And the only antidote for that man and for the church is to compare themselves to God to see themselves in relationship to the Lord who has assigned them to this task. The fear of the Lord is the building block of this effective spiritual leader. They also guard truth. That's in 6 and 7. True instruction, he says, is found in his mouth. He guards knowledge so other people can and should seek instruction from him. This is one of the key questions we have for any associate pastor candidate is, Do people seek you out for instruction? Do they care to have you shepherd them? Because what that betrays is that that man has a depth of, a knowledge of the word, not just in his head, but in his life, and people see it. And they're drawn to it, and they say, that guy can help me, and I'm going to go talk to him about it. That's what he's describing here in Malachi 2, that his life is compelling for others to come and ask for help. And untying the knots of difficult, practical living in this life of faith. And the words of this priest, this faithful, good, spiritual leader, are are simply the bucket that he raises up from the depths of the well of truth that resides deep in his soul. This is not his work or his truth or his message. He's actually said in verse 7 to be the messenger of the Lord. He's simply the mouthpiece of God. Oh, that more leaders in Christ's church would be convinced of this reality. And particularly that more preachers would be convinced of this. I, I frankly don't know how pastors operate without this truth undergirding the whole of their ministry. If I had to get up here and tell you what I thought about anything, it would be a very short, unproductive time. But I get to stand here and say, thus saith the Lord. Here it is, look at it. Here's what it means. Here's how it applies. Here's how you should live because it says it this way. This is all pastors are to do. God's leaders get out of the way, lay the truth plain, and love God's people as they apply it to their lives. As it turns out, I have found through the years that God's sheep are just hungry. God's sheep just want to be fed. They just want the truth. Sure, they they want it presented in in fresh ways and not dull ways. They want you to be somewhat engaging in how you present it. Whatever. Yes, all those skills are helpful. At the end of the day, God's sheep just want to be fed God's word. And where you have been given leadership in and over any part of God's people, this is what good leadership looks like. It guards truth. It also walks, they also walk uprightly. At the end of verse 6, they teach truth, but then they're a model of a life directed by that truth. They teach and they exemplify. This is by God's design. It's purposeful and it's helpful. It's the rounding out of their impact on God's people. Not perfect lives, but upright lives. Lives molded and being further molded by the truth they proclaim. This is why the pastoral epistles lay down those qualifications for elders and deacons characterized entirely by godliness. They're to be men of character who show their character in the context of life, and and you're to test them to see if they do, and if they do, then they can be elevated to positions of official leadership in the church. This is indeed so very wise of our Lord. We all learn better by teaching and example, right? Things are, are taught and caught, you know this with your children. When you've taught them one thing for years and then they see you doing the other and they say, yeah, but. But when you tell them something and then you back it up with your example, they bring it into their own life and they start to live the same way. This is godliness within the church. Elders and deacons in positions of leadership given by God in his church to be examples of upright lives. teaching and exemplifying how we should now live. And beloved, the church must settle for nothing less. So I ask you, how does the church get good spiritual leaders? The question we have, as elders, have been asking for several years and wondering how do we lay down plain paths for men especially, and not just men. We want women to grow in their leadership too in the areas God's entrusted to them. But how do we as church leaders help men, and especially how do we raise them up to take our place? Because we all should be self-reproducing, right? In that sense, we all should be concerned about who's going to take my place when I'm no longer able to serve. And so we want to develop men who fit with this good spiritual leadership laid down in Malachi too. And that's what that Excel Ministries training is all about. It's about helping you know the path forward and a clear way to help you develop these very realities in your life. So the church must discern bad spiritual leaders and develop good spiritual leaders. But can I finish by pointing you to the the great high priest? Even in examples in the Old Testament where priests were faithful, they were still flawed. Even in the New Testament and in the New Testament church of today, where Pastors are faithful, they're still flawed. The chief example being the one who stands before you this morning. Your hope is not in a priest of yesteryear or in a pastor of today or in a pastor yet to come. Your standing before the God of heaven is not secured by any other man who has stood in your place or can do something for you that you think you cannot do. As Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us. And so he stands as our great high priest who never failed, never faltered and never stumbled, laid down his sinless life as our perfect sacrifice given to God. And like the sons of Levi, he was the firstborn. He took the place of the firstborn, the only begotten son, and paid down our redeeming price so that we would not have to die but could live. And now as the great shepherd, he oversees his flock and is Lord over his church and he will deliver us safely home. And we will stand for all of eternity in his presence, rejoicing in his glory because he has been our faithful and good high priest. All praise to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to take our place and secure our redemption. We pray that he would alone receive the glory and the honor in this day and in all the days to come and especially on that eternal day. We pray that you would help us as a church to discern bad spiritual leadership, to guard ourselves from and deal with it when it rises up. And we also ask, Lord, that you would develop among us good spiritual leadership? Where it is present, would you encourage it and cause it to flower all the more? Where it is yet needed, would you by your Spirit's power and work move us along as a church individually and corporately to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, able to lead and willing to follow as you would so ordain. Thank you, Father, for your work in all these ways. We pray that your name will be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen.